0: Father, we admit that we are a needy people and we need you. We need you this hour to do as we've just prayed, to open our eyes and open our ears and open our heart to your word, that we would respond well, Lord, to your instruction. Thank you for your written word and the privilege of holding it in our hands. And Lord, we would even offer it as part of our worship our attentiveness to the Word. Father, we're so easily pressed into the mold of the world and we're so given to think with human wisdom and the wisdom of man. And so use this time now like the hammer on the anvil to shape and to mold and to fashion us into what you want us to be. Lord, we're grateful for your faithful. Kind love for us, your mercies that were new again, even this morning. And thankful, Lord, that you are patient with us and faithful even when we are faithless. Lord, we are prone to wander and prone to error and prone to false thinking. And so, renew us today, renew us in our minds through your word, renew us in our hearts with an energy and an enthusiasm. To live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we would be indeed the salt and light in a watching world, and that they would be able to observe of us that we're not like the rest, but we've been with Jesus. It's in His name we pray, committing ourselves to you and to your word. Amen. Perhaps you heard the story of the young graduate student who was doing very well in his studies. So well, in fact, that he was encouraged to go on with his graduate-level work, and and that's what he did. Working in the area of child psychology, as he finished out his PhD program, his instructing uh, professors encouraged him to get his doctoral thesis published into a book. They thought it was so good and practical, and so he did, and it actually had some success. The book, based on his PhD doctoral thesis work, was Six Essentials for Raising Children. Excuse me. Six Essentials for Raising Successful Children. And it hit the market, and it had some success, and, and so a few years later, the public, publisher approached him again and said, "Look." We'd like to put out a a second edition of this book. It did quite well the first time. Would you look it over, clean it up a little bit? Let's let's put it out again with a new cover on it and so forth. Well, by this time, he and his wife had their first child. And so as he worked up his book, he decided that he ought to alter the title a little bit. And so the second edition came out. Six suggestions for raising children. (laughs) Well, that did pretty well as also and uh, f- a number of years went by and now they had three children and they had their oldest entering the adolescent years and the publisher approached him and said, hey, we'd really like to run that book again. That had some good insight and we'd li- we had success with it. Why don't you clean it up, put a new cover on it, and we'll run a third edition of it. And, and so he went to work on it and he submitted it to the publisher with the new title, six frustrations parents face in raising a family. (laughs) Well I don't know if that's a true story, I doubt it. But doesn't it illustrate that raising children is not an exact science? In fact, uh, whether you are whether or not you are there's another stink bug. Whether or not you are an intentional, involved, loving parent or whether you're a detached, distracted, distressed parent, would you agree that you cannot not influence? You cannot not influence. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 26 with that thought in our minds. This passage is really not about parenting But I can't help but see in this passage that there is a great deal to do with the influence of one generation upon the next generation. And particularly in our passage, it is a great deal to do with a father and his influence on his son. We're working our way through Genesis here at Fellowship Bible Church. We're taking our time, although we are trying to lop off, if you will, one chapter at a time, if that fits together. And this morning we have a long section, 35 verses, as we want to cover the entire chapter 26. Let me remind you, as I did last week, without going into as much detail, that we are now in the, the life and family tree of Abraham, remember? Remember? And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah had, had twin boys named Esau and Jacob. And you'll notice that chapter 26 does not include any information on Esau and Jacob, but last week chapter 25 did. And what I want to suggest to you is that our chapters right now and the, the flow of the storyline is actually out of chronological order. And I'm going to suggest to you that chapter 26 in real time came before chapter 25. I like to think, and I can't prove it, and it really doesn't matter, but do you remember last week that one of our points in chapter 25 was that Isaac, understanding that through the promise God made to his father Abraham, that he was the son of promise, and that through his offspring then, the world would be blessed. We're going to have a reiteration and a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant in this passage again today to Isaac. Isaac knew that, and remember, there was a 20-year window before he and Rebekah could have children, and that he prayed and interceded on behalf of the Lord, and we suggested that there was no doubt some concern and frustration with God, wondering, what in the world are you doing in our family? We're the line of promise, and we're not able to have children. And so they went to God. He answers the prayer and gives them Esau and Jacob. And you remember last week was largely about Esau and Jacob. Next week when we get to chapter 27, it's going to go back to Esau and Jacob and it's going to go right to the end of Isaac's life because in in our book of Genesis and in this context, you need to know that the Bible offers the least amount of information about Isaac for all the patriarchs. Abraham, we have significant literature a number of chapters, and then Abraham dies, and then Isaac comes, and they have Esau and Jacob. We're going to have more information about Jacob, and we're going to have even more information about his son Joseph. And uh, that's really the remainder of the book, Jacob through Joseph. And uh, there's, But Isaac, this son of promise, given to Abraham and Sarah, the suggestion would be that he was a good man, Not a perfect man, nor was his father Abraham, was he? But all said and done, he was a good man who honored the Lord with his life and through whom God worked, but we have limited information. And so the most information we have in one reading is chapter 26 of Genesis about Isaac. So thinking in time, in the chronological historical timeline, I'm suggesting to you that this probably happened, chapter 26 happened sometime perhaps in intervals in the 20-year period that before he and Rebekah actually had Esau and Jacob. All right, let's read it. It's a relatively long passage, but without apology, let's read it all and let's read with comprehension. You follow along. I'm reading out of the New International Version. Genesis chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, and the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham." I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. And when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Verse 12, Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, "'The water is ours.' So he named the well Esek, because they disputed with him. And then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come up to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? And they answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you, so we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning the men swore an oath to each other, and then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came to him and told about the well they had dug. They said, We've found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Genesis chapter 26. Well, if you've been with us for any amount of time in our Genesis series, did you hear anything that sounded familiar to you? We've heard all this stuff, haven't we? I mean, almost verbatim, the incidents and occurrences of this chapter already happened in the life of Abraham, didn't they? In fact, it is so similar and so parallel that liberal Bible scholars and skeptics will point to this and they will say, you see, because if you've been with us, you know that a lot of this happened not just once, but even twice. For example, the story in this chapter, beginning with verse 7, where Isaac is going to lie about Rebekah being his wife and call her his sister. Abraham did that twice in his lifetime, remember? He did it once when he went to Egypt, and he did it once right here in the Philistine territory of Gerar. And so there it is, and a lot of skeptics will point to this and they say, you know, it is highly unlikely that the historians would have recounted and recorded three stories that are the same and so similar. And it is more likely that it is three tellings of the same story that only occurred once, probably in the life of Abraham. Now, you can pick and choose what you want to do, but if you're going to pick and choose that part of the Bible, why don't you pick and choose all the rest of the Bible that you're going to believe? And I have found that the consistent testimony of Scripture will usually embarrass the skeptic. But I was thinking about this. Why do you think the historian, probably Moses, put right in verse 26, chapter 26, verse 1, look what he said when he started the chapter. Now there was a famine in the land, and then, parenthetically, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And, you know, I got to thinking about human nature. And I was thinking, when you grow up running John Deere tractors when you're a kid, what do you usually run when you're an adult? You run John Deere tractors, or you take red tractors and spray paint them green. All right? And if you grow up fishing smallmouth bass in the Susquehanna, where's your favorite place to go fish when you're grown? Smallmouth bass in the Susquehanna. Right? I mean, isn't it human nature to just kind of track with the influencing factors of our lives, it doesn't mean that we do everything the same. But what I see in chapter 26 of Genesis is I just see incredible impact of the influencing factor of one generation on another, and particularly in this story of a father to his son. This boy grew up watching his dad do the very same things. There's a couple other questions and details that we'll get to when we get there, but let me just quickly click off, and some of you will be able to put it in perspective. You'll recall that Abraham, early on in a famine, went clear to Egypt, and that's when he lied about his wife there and got in a little bit of trouble and so forth, and then he did it again in Gerar, in the Philistine country here, and so forth. Let me just list the parallels and the similarities between father and son, and if you've been here, you'll recognize this. Abraham and Isaac both failed to trust God during a time of famine. Both Abraham and Isaac sought relief in Gerar near the land of Philistines. Both had beautiful wives. Both feared for their safety because of their beautiful wives. Both lied. I won't say what that says about marrying somebody ugly, but both feared for their safety. Both lied by saying that their wife was their sister. Both put their wives and others and the covenant of God at great risk because of their lack of faith. Both sinned against a Philistine leader named Abimelech. Both were rebuked by the ruler of the Philistines of this pagan nation. Godly men rebuked by a pagan leader. Both failed to recognize, it would seem, according to the accounts that we have, the gravity of their sin, nor is there any record of their repentance of it both entered into written treaty agreements with the Philistines. A lot of similar tracking. And I thought that it would be interesting for us, and I could not overcome the emphasis on the duplicate behavior, the repeated behavior. And that's why I've entitled our sermon today, Like Father, Like Son. You cannot not influence And I think we really see that exemplified in the lives of Abraham and Isaac. I'd like us to look at this passage and break it down, and in so doing, I want to suggest, even though I've just rattled off a list of the similarities, I want for our structure this morning to suggest six ways in this passage that Abraham and Isaac live their lives in tandem, live their lives in a reflection of one another, really Isaac, a reflection of the influence of his father upon his life. We'll end with some practical application. First of all, I want you to see as the chapter begins that like his father Isaac, number one, like his father Abraham, Isaac, number one, disregarded God's will in the face of adversity. Let me say that again. In chapter 26, verse 1, we're going to see that like his father Abraham, Isaac disregarded God's will in the face of adversity. Look what it says. Now there was a famine in the land, verse 1. Not the one that happened at Abraham's time, but a different one. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. And there the Lord appeared to him. But we know from what the Lord says to him that he was just passing through, that he was on his way to Egypt. He was going to do exactly like his father did the first time he encountered a famine. Now, I would suggest that neither of these guys woke up in the morning and said, Now, today, how can I get out of the will of God? Today, how can I mess my life up by not doing what God wants me to do? We rarely think like that, right? I mean, once in a while, we might have thoughts and actually cross lines that we know, This is not God's will, but I'm doing it anyway. And then you always live to regret it. I'm not suggesting that they said, I want to purposely live outside of the will of God. But I want to suggest that as they were pressed in with the circumstances of the famine, that is, water became difficult. They were taking a hit from their crops, taking a hit with their livestock. They could see the the profit margins shrinking as as their livestock rib cages began to show. And so they did what? They did what everybody else around them would do. We had emphasized this when Abraham went to Egypt. It wasn't like it was dumb to go to Egypt. There's a big river called the Nile in Egypt. And there's water there in the Nile. And you go there. That's where you go. But they're not normal people. They're not Joe Average walking down the street guys. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Abraham, the man of faith, the man of God's choosing through whom he's going to bless the entire world, through whom he's going to unfold a specific plan, and we're talking about his son Isaac, who's next in line to carry out the promise, and God might not want him in, in Egypt. You know, we're like this a little bit, aren't we? We get pressed in with difficult circumstances, and what do we do? We use human logic, and we do what everybody else is doing to respond to it, and then maybe we remember to pray. What I'm suggesting is that these guys both had a tendency to act first and pray second. They didn't think first. Okay, Lord, because this is exactly what their situation was. Lord, you called me to this spot right here. This is where you told me to be. And now my cattle are getting skinny, my sheep are dying, I don't have any water to water my corn and my green beans, and my servants are complaining because they're drinking warm water, warm muddy water out of little stream beds. Lord, what do you want us to do? Lord, how are you going to provide for us? They didn't pray like that. They just looked around and said, you know what, we've got to get out of here. No, wait a minute. God called you to stay there. And when they moved, regardless of the motive for their moving, they were out of the will of God. And they both did it. And they both got in trouble because of it. Number one, like his father Abraham, Isaac disregarded the will of God in the face of adversity. They depended on the wisdom of man instead of the will of God. You'll see this in Abraham's life in chapter, don't turn there, chapter 12, verse 10, chapter 20, verse 1. Number two in our passage today, we see then that God comes and speaks to Isaac, and he stops him. He had gotten as far as this Philistine territory, to the, farther to the west of where he had been living, and he stops there. En route to Egypt, and verse 2 says, The Lord appeared to Isaac and he said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. See, it's God's will for him to be there. But there's a famine. Evidently, the results of the famine were not as great, even right there, where he was in the Philistine territory. He said, Stay in the land for a while, and I will be with you. God goes on then to restate the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that he made with his father. I will be with you and I will bless you for you and your descendants I I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and so forth. And your nations, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements. And then look at verse 6. And so Isaac stayed in Gerar. You know what I see there is a similar characteristic that he had learned from observing his father Abraham. Number two, Isaac, like his father Abraham, obeyed God's word with a spirit of humility. Isaac, like his father Abraham, obeyed God's word with a spirit of humility. What happened? Isaac wakes up, moves his whole camp, says, we're going to Egypt. God stops him, says, no, don't go to Egypt. Stay right here. I'm going to give you this land. This is your land. I want you to stay in your land. And when Isaac heard a clear word from the Lord, what did he do? He obeyed. That's good, isn't it? That's a good quality. How many of us, when we hear a clear word from the Lord, obey? It's not that we can't make mistakes. It's not that we don't have days where we function in the wisdom of man. It's not where we sometimes observe and get pressed into the mold of the world. But when God makes himself clear and we have a message from the Lord and we have a word from the Lord, what do we do? We obeyed. That's what Abraham did, right? That's the life testimony of Abraham. Hey, Abraham, I want you to go to a land far away. What land, Lord? Don't know what land. Just go. Load your donkey. Let's go. That's exactly what Abraham was commended for, wasn't it? That by faith he went to a land not knowing where it was or when he would get there. He just did. Why did he do it? Because God said it and when God said it and he understood it, he always did it. That's why Abraham is held up as a great, probably the, one of the greatest testimonies of faith recorded in our Bibles. Now I want to suggest this. Let's use a father and son which is what's in our context. And just because a father obeys the word of the Lord does not guarantee that he's going to raise a son who obeys the Lord. You've noticed that, haven't you? But I want to tell you something. Do you think that Isaac humbled his heart and immediately obeyed the Lord, even though he was heading to Egypt, do you think he would have readily obeyed the Lord if he had not grown up with a father that he watched always obeying the Lord? because of Abraham's testimony of obedience, don't you think Isaac grew up watching that? That's what my dad did. Whenever my dad heard from the Lord, he obeyed him. And remember, they didn't have a Bible to open and read, but the Lord would appear to them and give them more information. When the Lord spoke to them through either a theophany, a a, a pre-incarnate appearance of God himself or Christ himself, or an angel messenger would come and speak to them, because we don't know how he received this word. He was just a word from the Lord... But when he got a word from the Lord, he did it. And he watched his father his whole life. I want to tell you something. If you're going to raise up a godly son, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to influence him to obey the word of the Lord, right? That's why we read that chapter 3 in Proverbs today. It's the if-then. If you will keep my commands, and if you will listen to me, and if you will do, and it's the personification of wisdom there then you will be blessed. Then you will live a long life. Number one, he disregarded God's will in the face of adversity just like his father did. But, to his credit, number two, he obeyed God's word with a spirit of humility. When he heard God's word, he obeyed it. I can't help but be convicted about the fact that we hold God's word in our hand right here every day. We don't have to wait for a messenger, do we? We don't have to wait for somebody to come in a dream and tell us. It's right there on the desk every day. I wonder if our little boys are watching their daddies humble their heart and willingly obey the Word as they have it. There it is. Obey it. You're going to raise a godly son? You're going to influence a son to grow up and walk in the truth? You're going to grow up grow up a boy who can stand against the pressures of this evil world? You're going to grow a boy up who, and a daughter and sons and daughters grandchildren up who are going to love the Lord their God with all their heart, then they better be watching granddaddy and daddy walk in humble obedience to the revealed word of God. There it is. And I think that impacted Isaac tremendously. Number three in our passage, we enter now a section, verses 7 to 11, that when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. Now, this is weird. Now, I want to suggest something else about the breakdown of this passage. I'm not sure that chapter 26 all happened like in a few weeks. In fact, I think it's pretty easy to build a case that this was probably years went by, okay? And that these are occurrences that take place over the course of a 20-year window is what I'm arguing But Isaac, moving now his whole camp, which is pretty good size, it's not as big as it's going to get pretty soon, moving them down towards Egypt, stops in Gerar in the Philistine country there. God says, stay here. Verse 6 says, he obeyed. He obeyed the word of the Lord. And then the next thing it does, it says, Isaac's walking around telling everybody, hey, meet my sister Rebecca. Because why? Because he's afraid. What's he afraid of? He's afraid he's going to get whacked and somebody's going to steal his wife. Now, before you're too critical of him, I think, by inference and by implication, see, the same thing happened to Abraham, his dad. When he went to Egypt, he did that. And when he was in Gerar, in the Philistine country, he did the same thing again, a second time in his life. And now his son is doing it in Gerar. I have to conclude that it must have happened. It must have been the thing. You know, you're living in a rough neighborhood. You're living on the side of the tracks that... If you got a cute girlfriend, all the other guys in the neighborhood will come get her. And so he was really rightfully, legitimately frightened by what happened in that part of the country. These are brutal, rough people. And evidently, Rebecca was a beautiful woman. And I think that's another clue to the fact that this probably happened in her younger years. She's just a beautiful, stunningly, remarkably beautiful woman. And Isaac knew that the men of that community were going to want her. And the way they were going to get her, if they found out they were mar- he was married to her, was he was going to wake up dead one morning. And he didn't want to do that. And so, I wonder where he heard that. I know what I'll do. I'll do like my dad did. Hey, honey, you're my sister from now on. But old Abimelech, he's pretty observant, and he's looking out his window one day, and he sees Abraham, as the King James Version says, Uh, making sport with Rebecca. It says uh, caressing her in the NIV. Nobody really knows exactly what the word means. It's actually a play on the word, on his name Isaac. It means laughter. They were evidently giggling and laughing as they sported. Whatever the sport was, it's not a sport that you play with your sister. Okay? And so Abimelech was able to look out the window and say, That dude is lying to me. So he goes running down there. You caught that in the reading, right? Why did you lie to me? Does this sound familiar? He did exactly the same words, exactly the same thing that he said to Abraham. If you want to find that, it's in um, chapter 12, verse 13, and chapter 20, verse 2. Those are the two occurrences. In chapter 20, verse 2, is the one where he did it in in Gerar, in the Philistine country. Now, Some of you are sharp and you're thinking about the timeline here and you're thinking, maybe the skeptics have a point because if this is Abimelech and this is Phicol, the commander of the army, those are the exact same guys that went and confronted Abraham. What's going on here? Because this is at least 70 years later, at least. I would suggest two things. First of all, it is remotely possible because in the time of the patriarchs, what are we living? The lifespan is down to about 120 to 150 years. So it is possible, it is possible that when Abimelech and Phicol first took command of this Philistine territory, they were young men and they encountered Abraham lying about his sister, his wife, Rebekah, and that they are exactly the same two guys. Another theory that Bible students present is the one that I would hold to, but I don't have any proof, and it doesn't really matter. The Bible calls them Abimelech and Phicol. Call them whatever you want. Is that the names were passed down on these leaders' guys. And that one king would take the next king's name and they would pass it. And a lot of times it was his son. And uh, you did the same thing with the Herods, with the, with the pharaohs. A lot of them shared the names And so whether or not it's the same exact guys that are now encountering Isaac, they may have encountered Abraham when when they were young, but now they're encountering Isaac maybe when they're old men at the end of their reign, but it's likely that it's a different set of leaders who have the same titles and same names. i just throw that out there to make sure you know I thought about that. don't have any answers really for it, but there it is. Number three, like his father Abraham, Isaac... Responded to fear with a lack of integrity. Let me say that again. Number three, like his father Abraham, Isaac responded to fear with a lack of integrity. Do you see what happened? He had a legitimate fear, didn't he? He was afraid for his life, and so what does he do? Hey, let's do this and let's do that. You be my sister. Blah 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 blah. He lied. God's man lying, ultimately God's man embarrassing himself before the pagan king, God's man having less confidence in the security that he has in his heavenly father than the fear of God that was found in Abimelech who said, what if we'd have messed with her? What if one of my men would have laid down with her? Your God would have wiped us out. This pagan king, just like in the... Account with Abraham says almost exactly the same thing. And this pagan king either observed something in Abraham and Isaac, or he just innately knew and had a fear of God that somehow was lacking in Isaac. Three times in the passage, it references it, two times specifically, verse 3 and verse 24 God says to Isaac, Do not be afraid, I will be with you. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. He sets up camp in Gerar, and he immediately gets afraid, and his integrity house caves in, and he lies about it, trying to protect himself. Once again, what do we have? We have the wisdom of man versus the will of God. We have have man concocting up his own scheme, sharpening his own sword, rather than saying, God will protect me. He called me here. I'm not going to worry. If God called me here, then God can carry the weight of the... Weight of the responsibility of protecting me in his plan. But both father and son. And I'll tell you something. If you want to undermine the work of God in your parenting, demonstrate a lack of integrity to your children. If you want to undermine the work of God in your home and family, demonstrate a lack of integrity to your children they will think you have the shallowest faith and they will have nothing to do with your God when when you do things like say oh, tell them I'm not here tell them I'm not here you're a liar your kid knows you're a liar and there's only one way to say it you're a liar you're here don't tell them you're not here say you're not available I'm not available. Say, I don't want to be talking to that person right now and I'm not going to talk to him, I'll talk to him later. Don't say I'm not here. Because you're a liar. Kids know, man. On it goes. Buy it, take it home, stand in front of the mirror. I I don't think it looks good with my skin color. What do you think, honey? Yeah, whatever you think. I'm going to take this back. Um, I wanted to return this it didn't fit you're a liar your little girl's standing there and she knows you're a stinking liar she saw you trying to get your husband to say it was good you're a liar how are you going to teach them how are you going to teach them to fear God to love righteousness to live a disciplined life of godliness when you don't have a house of integrity that's in order you see You want to to destroy the communication of faith to the next generation, cave in in the integrity world in front of your children and let them see that you don't have convictions that matter, beans to you. I don't know if that's exactly what Isaac saw in his father Abraham, but they both responded to fear with a lack of integrity in their life. A couple more real quick. Fourthly, I want you to see that the passage shifts gears really quickly, really rapidly. And it goes through this. Abimelech gives him orders to protect them then. Don't mess with these guys because they have, they have a powerful God and we don't want to mess with them. Then verse 12, it says then, just like a new chapter. And I imagine, and it does say that a long time went by. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. You see, people appointed pointed to passages like that and say, so you're telling me every bushel of wheat he planted in the fall, he harvested 100 bushels of wheat for the one bushel of seed he put in the ground. I'm saying, yes. Say, that's impossible. It's not impossible because it said, why? What happened? Because the Lord blessed him. And guess who notices? The whole neighborhood is watching. Look at his garden. Look at that corn. Man! This guy's unbelievable. Why did God bless Isaac after he had just caved in in his integrity house? I don't know, but I would suggest that time is going by and I would suggest that though we don't have the details, we see Isaac maturing in his faith and he learned from that incident in front of Abimelech God is at work in him and all of these incidences are working together to prove that God is in control God is preserving the promised seed God, has, God is sovereign over the affairs of men and he's working them out to his own ends and over and over these occurrences these incidents and even these failures turn us to say isn't it amazing how God is still just bringing about his plan, even in the weakness of men. And in all of that, I think that Isaac is growing and developing. And now at this point, God is showing the neighbors that this is my man. There's something going on that is supernatural. Nobody can plant one bushel of potato seed and get a hundred bushels from each bushel. Nobody. Well, maybe with seed, I don't know the report. Don't be technical, you gardeners, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. I don't know how seed, when you dice it up one bushel, how many bushels of potatoes that brings, but whatever, you understand what I'm saying. And God is wanting to show that this is my man. Number four, like his father Abraham, Isaac received from God's hand blessing and prosperity. Can I suggest to you that um, part of the blessing of Isaac was that he was an obedient young man. Remember going up to Mount Moriah? He was old enough to cut and run and he humbled his heart and he did what his father said. Because he was a young man who was obedient in his older age, God blessed him. We'll talk about that in just a minute in application. Like his father Abraham, Isaac received from God's hand blessing and prosperity Let me just mention the other two. They're not as significant necessarily, but I want you to see, like father, like son. One generation passing on lifestyle and truth to the next generation. Number five, I want you to see that like his father Abraham, Isaac lived openly for God in a watching community. He lived openly for God in a watching community community. Look what it says in verse 28. Let's skip way ahead to 28. They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. Now, we're believers in the Lord Christ. We're redeemed ones. We're called out from this world. So how do we know? We paint in every house in the neighborhood that has believers in it, purple with white polka dots on it, so that we can drive up and down the streets and say, there's a Christian, there's a Christian, there's a Christian. We don't do that, do we? Nor does God want us to do that. But I wonder if a watching community sees anything different about the way we live. In this sense, Abraham passed on to Isaac this great trait and dynamic that he lived for God no matter what, and the community noticed. And Isaac did the same thing. They watched and they knew that he was God's man. By his, so there's growth going on. There's a timeline in this chapter. As God blesses, they moved out. We already skipped over part of the chapter, but they re the wells of his father Abraham. He even named them the same names that his father had given the wells. In this country, if you had water, you had the territory. And the Philistines wanted him out because he was getting so big and blessed of God. Finally, he gets out to Beersheba where he gets his own water in there, and then he has enough space and the Lord says you can stay there. Finally, number six, notice when Abimelech comes and makes this agreement because their herdsmen have been fighting and they're digging up the wells and the herdsmen of Abimelech say, that's our water, this is our land. And, And Isaac graciously moves out, graciously keeps moving, responds with grace to his enemy. A soft answer turns away wrath. Isaac is evidently powerful enough to force his hand in this situation. Abimelech realizing that Isaac has become so powerful, comes and has him sign a contract of agreement. And I just wanted to throw in, because I enjoyed preaching the message on hospitality and challenging us that that is a great Christian quality that I wanted to notice number six, that like his father Abraham, Isaac practiced generous hospitality, verse 30. Isaac then made a feast for them, kept them for the night. That was Abimelech and Phicol, and he sent them away. Just a little inference. If you heard that message, you know what I'm talking about. Isaac grew up watching his father do certain things. You know, if you fish with Zebco reels, my daddy always used those. I want a couple of those in my tackle box too. My daddy always had a way of killing the goats and putting on the warm bread and feeding the neighbors before he sent them home. You come in my house and sit down and eat. Do like his daddy did. Well, there you go. There's some parallels Like his father Abraham, Isaac, number one, disregarded God's will in the face of adversity. He obeyed God's word with a spirit of humility. He responded to fear with a lack of integrity. That was a negative. He received from God's hand blessing and prosperity. He lived openly for God in a watching community. And he practiced generous hospitality. You cannot not influence. Do you know that? Now, looking at those things, can I wrap it up with what I'm just calling random thoughts and conclusions? There's three of them. Number one, the eye is a more ready pupil than the ear. The eye is a more ready pupil than the ear. Some time ago, my brother gave me for a gift, probably 20 years ago, a little plaque that he did in calligraphy. My brother's gifted in art and fine things. And it's a poem that was in Ronald Reagan's Oval Office, and he gave it to the Teacher of the Year. That guy, can't think of his name, that Focus on the Family produced a production about. Dodd. Yeah, something like that, Dodd. Yeah, he's a great, great story. Years ago, Focus on the Family. And Anyway, whatever his name was, he... That's good. And uh, he, when Ronald Reagan did it, he, Ronald Reagan hand wrote this poem on a piece of paper from a plaque that was in his office and gave it to him. And at first, the guy thought, "I'm Teacher of the Year, and you give me a handwritten? How much would you give for a handwritten poem from Ronald Reagan?" Anyway, he put it on eBay. I'd rather see a sermon. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather you just walk with me than merely point the way. The eye is a more ready pupil than ever was the ear. Good advice is oft confusing, but example is always clear. It's good, isn't it? Isn't it good? Do you get that out of this story? Do you get that out of the influence of Abraham to Isaac? A boy growing up, watching his father living out the very same traits, qualities, decision-making frameworks as his father. Number one, in conclusion, the eye is a more ready pupil than the ear. Number two, another lesson I want you to take home from this story is that failure is a powerful teaching tool. Don't waste it. Failure is a powerful teaching tool. Don't waste it. Do you see the failures of Abraham repeating themselves in the failures of Isaac? I wonder if Abraham ever took the time to sit on a rock when he was out in the field with his son Isaac. And no one else was around. And maybe Isaac's 12 or 13 or 14 now and he's becoming a man And in an appropriate way, with appropriate words, with just enough detail, but not too much detail that he doesn't need to know the sin all the way. But to say to his son, Son, let's sit here a minute and let me tell you about some things I really did wrong. One time I went to Egypt without praying about it. It It's one of the most disastrous decisions of my life. While I was there, I, I talked your mother into letting me call her My sister, Dad, well, just listen to the story. Son, I want to tell you something. When you're afraid for your life, when you're a grown man and you're afraid for your life, you'll do anything. Son, I failed. God spoke to me and he said he'd be with me and I don't need to fear and I was afraid. And son, let's just pray right now that God will put a spirit of courage in you. Son, don't ever do what I did. You see? I don't know if he ever did that, and I don't know if it would 100% foolproof. I'm sure it's not. Kids aren't robots. Parenting's not an exact science, but you cannot not influence. And what I see here is that Abraham had failure, and he could have used it for great teaching opportunity. Thirdly, and this is directed right to the children in the audience, I want you to listen. You might have missed the whole sermon. Just listen and then we'll go home. Thirdly, and I already implied and referenced this a little bit, childhood obedience opens the door to adult blessing. Childhood obedience opens the door to adult blessing. Did you remember what we read in Proverbs chapter 3? That's exactly why I read that section. It's the if then. It's the results, conditional results passage that if you will obey me, if you will listen to my commands, if you will do what I tell you, then the way will go well with you. You will prosper. Your barns will be overflowing. Didn't Isaac have overflowing barns? Your vats will be filled with new wine. Your orchards will produce like no one else's. You will be blessed. Reminds me of the reiteration of that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the first command with a promise. The promise is this, that it will go well with you and that you will live a long life. You want to be prosperous when you're an adult? I'm not talking about necessarily money in the bank. I'm talking about the blessing of God upon your life. Then do what your parents have instructed you to do. Isaac was blessed, and I can't help but believe that he was an obedient youngster, particularly exemplified when he walked up Mount Moriah as probably a 16, 18, 20-year-old young man and let his father tie his wrists and lay down on that altar and maybe he had to shut his eyes, but he knew the knife was over and ready to plunge into his chest out of obedience to his father who he knew was being obedient to God and he trusted his father. Can your children trust you today? And children obedience in childhood is the key to blessing in adulthood. If you don't believe me and you're not going to learn through the ear gate, I can take you on a tour today and I can drive you around the Tri-County area and I can introduce you to 20 different guys who are living in misery because of childhood disobedience. I can show you case after case. Well, there it is. The parallel between a father and a son with the application the eye is a more ready pupil than the ear failure is a more powerful teaching is a powerful teaching tool don't waste it and childhood obedience opens the door to adult blessing can I indulge your time just another minute I was thinking about this message in regards to my own life I try to do that when I preach believe it or not I try to say okay Have I lived it? Am I living it? What's going on in my life? And late last night, I came and I dug in my file and I pulled out the transcript of what I said at my dad's funeral. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it occurred to me that so much of my life is about the model that I received from my father. Some good things and some bad things, just like Abraham and Isaac. And I thought that if you'll humor me, I would share just a paragraph or so from this. I did an introduction and I talked about the fact that we weren't wealthy children because of what he was leaving us in the bank accounts, but that he left us a phenomenal inheritance of his model and his example. And I said this, He gave us His name, and it was above reproach after 75 years. He left us as our inheritance His memory. We will remember our Father, who never ever was unfaithful, nor would be to our mother. He left us as our inheritance His love. He gave us the security of knowing we were loved. He was a man who often used words to say to us, I love you, Van." His love also showed in actions. It was no uncommon sight in our home to see Daddy kissing Mom in the kitchen. He left for us as an inheritance His example as He demonstrated to us an unswerving commitment to the Word of God. In fact, each of us children will now own and return to our homes with one of His worn-out Bibles. How many of us here have ever worn out even one Bible from study? He left us as our inheritance His instruction. It lives on in us. And much of what He taught us is what we now teach our children. Honesty, purity, generosity, zeal for souls, the priority of the local church, the importance of a prayer life, to care about missionaries, the ability to work with tools, the appreciation of a tree and sassafras tea and good lumber the eye to watch for geese in the sky or for a deer along the road or for their tracks in the sand, the difference between an Angus and a Holstein, how to laugh at a worn-out joke, how not to keep a garage, to give things a try, even if we were not totally sure how the problems would be solved, to can peaches and tomatoes and corn and green beans. And I'll stop there. How much of our lives consists of who came before us? And what are we leaving behind? It's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this great story today of one generation passing on to the other generation Thank you, Father, for the promise that was tucked in this passage in verse 3 and 24 that you will be with us and we do not have to be afraid. Father, may we be characterized as men and women and boys and girls who walk in the truth. Will you bless our children, Father? Bring conviction upon us as the adults. Help us all to be So aware of the reality that we cannot not influence the people around us. May we be men and women of integrity and godliness. May we exemplify the traits of Christ likeness. And may we have the joy one day of looking at the next generation and seeing our children walking in the truth. Father, bring conviction in homes where it's needed, in lives where it's needed. Reveal hidden sin, break hearts over lack of discipline, lack of godliness, and love of the world. Give us a fear of who you are, but yet may we always rest in your fatherly love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.